Well, good morning. I'm certainly grateful and thankful to our pastors for being given the opportunity to lead us in God's Word for this morning. The sermon for today, as Pastor Dan said, from Luke 22, I have entitled, Our Feebleness, Christ's Faithfulness. Now, before we jump into the text, I would like for you to think about a time where you let God down and failed. Maybe you promised God on January 1st that you would no longer entertain a particular sin. But here we are on February 19th, and you find that you've already succumbed to that temptation. Maybe you were going to work on your anger, but it only seems to have gotten worse. Perhaps you are finally going to follow that Bible reading plan, but find yourself woefully behind, as I do. With that failure in mind, I would like for you to ask yourself three questions. I have failed. What do I do now? How do I overcome this? And also, how does God view me knowing that I have done this? Our text for today conjures up these very questions, which is found in the book of Luke, chapter 22, and we'll be reading from verses 31 to 34, and then skipping to verses 54 to 62. If you'd please tap or turn with me to Luke 22. We'll begin reading in verse 31. Before we hear the reading of God's word this morning, please join me in asking the Spirit to illuminate our time this morning. God, we come before you today immensely grateful for your mercies. We pray for a humble disposition as we come to this text. We pray for the Spirit to illuminate our minds and soften our hearts to hear your purposes for us here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Moving to verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now as we begin to examine the text this morning, we'll be looking for some characteristics of a faithful disciple before we turn to looking at how this text influences how we are to act as believers here today. Now, as we come to verse 31, you notice that we enter into the middle of a story as the Last Supper has just happened. Jesus tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him, referring to Judas. This naturally sparks a discussion at the table. 
the disciples discuss who among them is the greatest in their faith to Jesus. After all, they were probably shocked at this statement and jockeying for position to show that it surely wasn't going to be them. Jesus puts this discussion to rest by giving them a promise in verse 30. He often leads with a promise. Here the promise is entrance into the kingdom, and that one day they would yet again eat with him, but in the new heaven and earth. Presumably, a short time after this comment, Jesus tells Peter of Satan's demand. The sense given echoes the book of Job, where Satan demands of God to test Job. Satan is similarly doing the same thing here in the book of Luke, except for this time he is demanding not to sift just one person, but rather all of the disciples in hopes of turning their allegiance. It's impossible to determine in the English, but the pronoun you that you'll see in verse 31 is plural in the Greek. Thus, Satan's intent is on all of the disciples. Now this image of sifting like wheat finds its origins in Amos 9.9, which says, For behold, I, God, will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Here in Amos, we see that God is the one sifting Israel amongst the nations. The wicked will fall, but God's pebbles, his chosen, will remain under his care. God sifts for his good purposes to refine his people. But Satan here in Luke intends his sifting for ill. Satan desires to violently shake God's children, using the chaos to turn them from the Lord. As wheat separates from the chaff in a sieve, a mesh utensil used for straining, so Satan intends to violently rip apart God's children rather than to refine them. Now perhaps Satan intends to be even more violent in his dealings with Peter, as verse 32 might indicate. The pronouns you and your turn to singular here in the Greek. In effect, Satan has asked to sift all of the disciples But Jesus explicitly tells Peter that he has prayed for him, that his faith might not fail. Of course, this does not mean that Jesus is not praying for all the disciples. John 17 clearly shows us that Jesus does pray for all of the disciples, indeed, even us here today. So Jesus does pray for all the disciples. But maybe Satan recognizes Peter as the leader of the twelve and thinks that he can affect them even more if he turns his attention to Peter. This may suggest why Jesus specifically tells Peter in the singular that he has prayed for him that his faith might not fail. This is interesting because it appears that just a short time later, as we have read, Peter indeed fails. So so what does Jesus mean when he is praying? Jesus is praying that Peter's faith might not give out completely as the sun behind the moon in a total eclipse. Again, God intends his testing to refine his children. We know this because of what comes next in verse 32. Jesus insinuates by the statement that Peter will go through some trial, but he doesn't state what that trial is at this point. What he does say indicates that God works in trials to refine his children. Jesus tells him that he will turn, think of repentance, and then help his brothers. Did you notice Now, Jesus asserts this before he even tells Peter what he will do wrong. Jesus promises Peter's ultimate victory before he gives him a command 
to strengthen his brothers. First, a promise. Second, a command. One commentator on these verses states, Luke couches the prediction of Peter's embarrassing denial in the context of a satanic onslaught coming full tilt at all of the disciples. And he uses it as an opportunity to assert Peter's ultimate victory. In fact, Jesus' confident intercession on his behalf in the word of victory when he turns is mentioned before any mention of Peter's denial. So in effect, as Jesus told Peter, we lead from victory bestowed on us by Christ. Since we live in Christ's victory, who we are, or rather whose we are, determines who we are. So who we are in Christ precedes what we do for Christ. It is easy to forget this, as it looks like Peter clearly does. But reversing that order will have devastating effects on our faith and turn it from guilt-ridden, morals-based, works-righteousness rather than working for Christ with joy. Now from Peter's response in verse 33, we see his readiness to assert his devotion to his Lord. So he is probably hit rather hard by Jesus' statement. He probably felt like his faithfulness was being called into question. Later we learn that he resolved to follow Jesus by looking inward for his faith, which denies dependence upon God. This is precisely what Jesus was after. For Peter to grow in faithfulness by knowing who he was in Christ and by turning to him for help. Our strength and resolve will fail, but Jesus never will. Here we find one characteristic of a faithful disciple. A faithful disciple is dependent upon God. So I wonder... Does how we spend our time reveal a dependence on ourselves or on God? Are we overly worked and overly busy scheduling all seven days of our week, subtly telling our Father that we have no need for Him? With everything we have at our fingertips today, we must fight to not rely on the gifts that God gives us and miss the God who has given those to us. Now on our way to verse 54, It is worth noting that while Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, he he tells the disciples to also pray. The first time, (laughs) they're they're tired, they fall asleep. The second time, he tells them to pray not to enter temptation. But then a crowd comes to arrest Jesus. It is here where we learn another characteristic of a faithful disciple. A faithful disciple is one who prays. Again, I wonder... Do we bring God ever, before God every anxious thought we have during a day, or do we find ourselves at the end of the day realizing that we have failed to consult God even once about these things? I am more than guilty here. Thus, on a smaller scale, we too often trust in ourselves more than we depend on God in prayer. And it is no coincidence that we see Jesus praying and asking the disciples to pray in verses 40 and 46, to not enter temptation. After all, like John Wooden says, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Jesus is faithful to his Father and models dependence on him in prayer, while Peter fails to pray. 
This is just a precursor of what is to come that we have already read. Peter's failure to pray demonstrates his lack of preparation for trial. Now, we ought not to be too quick to scoff at Peter here. We know he was told of his impending failure, and we're probably urging him to pray. However, we know that the Christian life is full of trial and temptation. In our professions and hobbies, we put in the time to train to make us skilled and competent. Yet sometimes we let those things get in the way of our spiritual preparation and time with the Lord. So the only solution that we are to draw from this is that we are no different than Peter. And apart from Christ, we are feeble and weak. Verse 54 shows Jesus being led away to the high priest's house. And Luke wants us to know that Peter was following at a distance. No coincidence that he finds himself putting these words in the text. So Peter partially keeps his promise of following Jesus from verse 33, thus revealing his faith, however weak it may be, that Jesus is the Messiah. What Peter has in mind is unclear, but one can understand how he was probably simultaneously conflicted. On the one hand, the consequences of following Jesus are probably the same fate as Jesus himself. On the other hand, Peter loves his Lord. It is with these things in mind that he enters the courtyard in verse 55. Now here the NIV renders this difficult construction, probably the best as it starts with, and when some there had kindled a fire, indicating that the trial then was inside the house. So in effect, the servants would wait outside by the fire while the more important people would be inside conducting business with Jesus' trial inside the house. And that will become important later on. So in this manner, at this point, Jesus is on trial at the same time that Peter is on trial. The irony here for Jesus' trial is that he goes before the high priest while he himself is the ultimate high priest according to the book of Hebrews. Yet we see Jesus using his powers as the Son of God for for Peter, for others, but not for himself. He submits to the will of his Father, humbling himself to the earthly high priests Annas and Caiaphas, setting in motion what we know as the events of Jesus' passion. Jesus submits to his Father, while Peter ultimately turns to himself. So Peter's trial then begins in verse 56, simultaneous with Jesus' inside. Peter's begins with the servant girl recognizing that he was not a servant of the high priest's court, and thus, naturally, was one of Jesus' followers. Peter's courage shatters in an instant at the words of a young girl. He appears to feel the weight of this, as the original text uses a word explicitly for a young girl that asks the question. But Peter responds by calling her a woman. Now, this is speculation here, admittedly. But it's probably a feeble attempt for Peter to make his sin look better in his own eyes. Here we find yet another characteristic of a faithful disciple. A faithful disciple takes sin seriously and doesn't just shrug it off. When we are struggling with temptation, do we turn to others here in our community 
like Peter had the option to do with his disciple friends? Or do we hide it thinking that on our own, we have the strength to overcome? Perhaps if Peter were honest about his struggles, not fearing if he was the greatest disciple, he could have turned to his Lord, who knows all anyway, and confessed his weakness and learned the way of dependence sooner. So Peter gets his first strike at the questioning of a young girl. A short time later, strike two. An hour later, his accent betrays him. Strike three, and the rooster crows. Peter strikes out by swinging at three straight pitches, missing every single time. But notice with me here, Peter's three responses. Verse 57, woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, man, I do not know him. Or man, I am not one of them. Verse 60, man, I do not know what you are talking about. These statements have one thing in common. Peter not once renounces his faith that Jesus is the Son of God. He does deny proximity with Jesus, and even that he doesn't know him as a person, which admittedly is still a lie. But he not once renounces his faith. Thus, Jesus' prayer for Peter's faith to not disappear is affected right here. What is happening here is summed up by a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Whenever God means to use a man for big things, he breaks him into little pieces first. Surely Peter was partially motivated by love, but it was the other motivation of of needing to prove his worth that Jesus was intending to break into little pieces. Peter was trying to round the bases on his own power, and Jesus was teaching him to purposefully run, taking time to acknowledge that Jesus has already hit a home run by being the perfect Son of God. Thus, Peter's fuel to run the bases becomes Jesus himself rather than his own strength and endurance. You see, suffering and trials are not obstacles to God's purposes. Rather, they are a means used by God for his purposes in our lives. God will take those little broken pieces of Peter's life and turn them more into the image of Christ. Moving to verse 61, Jesus is leaving the high priest's house to another trial elsewhere. It is in this transition that Jesus' eyes pierce the heart of Peter. But exactly how was Jesus looking at Peter? A lot of us might picture the same thing happened to Peter that we picture happens to ourselves. Picture a time where you similarly have let Jesus down. Maybe the one that came to mind during the introduction. Perhaps you were having fun with friends and had an opportunity to speak about your faith in Christ, yet you remained silent. Maybe you were having a hallway conversation or one in the lunchroom and you felt the Spirit nudging you, yet you remained silent. You have faith in Christ. No one denies that. But you have let him down and the rooster is crowing inside of your mind, echoing and reverberating the guilt and shame from your failure. I would suggest that at this point, just like Peter did, we have two options that we can take. One option is to turn inward. After wrongdoing, many of us may feel that we have to make it up before the Lord. In essence, I obey... Therefore, I am accepted by God. 
Tim Keller calls this moral performance identity. If you find yourself in this category, you may think that your success, being a good person and obeying God, regardless of the heart motive in doing so, is what defines your identity and your significance. The only result of failure in this manner is sheer devastation, with the only options being to crumble under our own guilt and shame. If this happens to be you, notice how Jesus looks at Peter in the text. The look was not one of, I told you so, or how could you, but rather one of forgiveness and encouragement. Jesus would not look to Peter like those around him. The servants of the high priest and the leaders probably had menacing glares of contempt as they saw Jesus and Peter look to each other. Jesus loved Peter. His look to Peter would eclipse those menacing glares. One can imagine that Jesus' look was one of encouragement, forgiveness, and one that carried hope for the future. You see, Jesus took the long approach with Peter, as he does with us. One failure doesn't ruin Jesus' plans to conform us to his image if we are one of his children. Here we learn another characteristic of a faithful disciple. A faithful disciple knows the extent of Jesus' forgiveness. Do we believe that God is gracious and truly forgives all of our sins? Or do we hold on to that one sin thinking that we have to make up for it by doing good deeds? For Peter to serve Christ and his people after the ascension, Peter needed to grasp the depths of Jesus' forgiveness. Similarly, we need to grasp the depths of grace, the unmerited favor bestowed on us by nature of being sons and daughters of the king, who is not thwarted by one misguided effort on our parts. So if you've come in here today with that one thing you've carried for months, maybe even years, that you haven't been able to release to Jesus, or maybe you are on the receiving end of someone else's Peter moment, be comforted by this story. God is not in heaven viewing you with contempt as dirty goods. He is not waiting for you to bring that before him just so he can strike you down. Peter is our example. God gives grace to his children. So the first option is to turn inward and operate out of a moral performance-oriented identity. The second option then is to turn outward. Tim Keller identifies this as a grace-based identity, shaped by the conviction that I am accepted by God through Christ Therefore, I obey. This is the remedy to moral performance, or whatever other notion we may find our identities in other than Christ. Notice it's not, I obey, therefore God accepts me. But rather, God accepts me through Christ. Therefore, I obey. It is impossible to know, but it's plausible that Peter had both of these identities battling internally against each other. It would appear that the moral performance identity wins out as he turns inward for his strength rather than outward to Jesus' grace. For Peter to learn of his need to repent of his feeble faith and to realize that Jesus cared first and foremost about who he was rather than what he did. Of course, both of these are important, but the order matters. 
for Peter to know who he was in Christ and to more fully, albeit not perfectly, depend on Jesus. He needed to know of Christ's love, but he also needed to have a changed mindset from being moral performance-driven to being grace-based in his identity. From pridefully trusting in self to humbly trusting in Christ. Jesus wanted to reveal more of himself to Peter, so he allowed him to have trials, so that he would come to know and be comforted that Christ is present in every situation and circumstance. Lastly, before we move on to some insights for us today, don't miss verse 62. Peter weeps. He is in good company because of the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. May I suggest that this was the most appropriate act of worship that Peter could have mustered in that moment. Why? Because mourning over our sin is an act of worship. If you're here today feeling just like Peter did, tell your Father in heaven that you are sorry. Ask him to forgive you. Let that be your act of worship rather than hiding it with an I'm good smile on your face. Doing this gives opportunity for others to help strengthen you by helping you to turn to Christ. Recognizing our brokenness before God ushers in his grace, giving us hope that he will restore our brokenness and all of our feelings. Peter worshiped by weeping because he was repenting of his sin and humbly trusting himself to Christ. He would continue this pattern for the rest of his life until he fulfilled the promise that he made from verse 32 by dying for Jesus' sake in martyrdom. It would be Jesus' grace that aided Peter's faithfulness that entire time. So having looked at this passage, we have seen that Christ is both the example and the means of grace for a feeble Peter. Let us turn now to seeing how this text, what it has to say for us today by looking at those three opening questions. I have failed. What do I do now? How do I overcome this? Also, how does God view me knowing that I have done this? Because of our fallen, sinful natures, we are prone to be spiritually proud, thinking of ourselves as better than we actually are. My wife's family likes to call this the P word. Indeed, the P word leads to trusting in ourselves in one instance and then in the next to be feeble and weak by succumbing to situations and circumstances around us. The redemptive solution then to our fallen condition is Christ. The gospel we believe is a person, faithfully obedient to the Father unto death in order to give us himself. Jesus takes on the guilt and the shame from our failures and our sins, and he replaces us with his honor and with the Spirit. Certainly this does not mean that we no longer remember our Peter moments. Forgetting them would not be healthy. In fact, Jesus saved us as we were, so we should remember our entire stories. At times, we will still feel discouraged by our past efforts, as I do, but they must not dictate our present realities. In other words, our identity and what we do as followers of Christ is to be found in more than just our failures. 
I remember last summer going to the art museum with Sarah and seeing all three of Van Gogh's bedroom paintings. According to the special exhibit, he spent his entire life in search of a place to call home. The bedroom painting is one of his beloved house, Yellow House, in France, the place where he was finally able to call home. The picture is it's very simple, one of a small bedroom, but its numerous and intricate layers have a way of drawing you in to see everything that's going on in the painting. Now, assuming I had never seen one of those paintings, if I were to take his original painting and have it covered so that I can only see about 5% of that painting, we'll say the the lower right-hand corner, I wouldn't think of seeing only a fraction of that painting and then judge the entire picture's worth, value, and beauty based on that fractional 5%. So I ask, why do we judge and base our identity on a fraction one or two Peter moments of our entire lives. God sees the whole painting of our lives and he isn't done with us yet. Our value and worth is only determined by Christ who is gracious in his dealings with us as we grow in him. He is in process of taking those Peter moments and turning them by his grace into a beautiful masterpiece. The finished product is Christ himself. So what this means is that we no longer have to compare ourselves horizontally to others, like the disciples did at the Lord's Supper, because we are vertically blessed. A pastor on Moody Radio said, Stop looking around to others to see where you think you need to be. Trust God with where you are, and let him take you where he thinks you need to be. This means we can help strengthen other brothers and sisters as Jesus commanded to Peter. Rather than compete with each other for God's favor, which he has already lavished in great proportions to all of us. May we let our vertical relationship with the Father through Christ inform our horizontal interactions with each other. After all, Peter went through trial to lead the young church in the book of Acts. Similarly, Let's use our failures to strengthen one another and to encourage one another in Christ. God speaks to us through our failures, and we can use them to speak to others who are going through a similar set of circumstances. In doing this, we should be careful not to fall into that trap, the snare that's called perfection that lurks behind a moral performance mindset. How many of us have denied Christ without renouncing Christ? as Peter did, and then instinctively thought, I ought not to do that. I know better than that. I shouldn't do that. My wife and I often tell each other, we don't like the word perfect. Oh, why would we say that? Because when we sin, those thoughts are our knee-jerk reactions, which are anti-grace. Thinking we have to be perfect places a barrier between us and God's grace. When we think we have to be perfect, a Peter moment is quickly followed by heaping guilt upon ourselves. This guilt can keep us from accepting God's grace because we subtly begin to follow what becomes our own law rather than the law of liberty that we find in Christ. Instead, we are to learn from Peter, repent and walk according to grace. Maybe we should follow that statement. We don't like the word perfect with, 
Jesus alone is perfect. Let us turn to his grace to fuel our obedience. It's rather long for a little quip, but I trust you get the point. If we have a moment of lapsed faith, let us humbly look upon our journey with Christ, honestly assessing where we are, and then turn to him to help us get back up. Trust God with where we are, repent when necessary, and then let his grace take us where we need to be in our Christian walk. You see, who we are precedes what we do. So let us turn to Jesus and let our desire for relationship with him fuel what we do. Because we have also been given a promise that we will one day eat with Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. It is his grace alone that will sustain us until that glorious day. But until that glorious day, what can we learn from this text that characterizes a faithful disciple? What are a few marks of a disciple that set us distinctly apart from how the world does things? A faithful disciple is one who is dependent upon God. One who prays, takes sin seriously, and knows the extent of Jesus' faith forgiveness. One who is dependent on God, one who prays, takes sin seriously, and knows the extent of Jesus' forgiveness. After all, every single one of these at their core has a recognition of ourselves as sinners, saved only by the grace of God. May we take these things upon ourselves to grow in our obedience to our Savior. And may we take these things upon ourselves as a means of strengthening our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The beginning act, however, is not to strive harder to depend on God to do these things. If we aren't careful, we will simply replace whatever we were doing with the guise of religiosity and still miss Jesus, as Peter did for a while. The beginning act is to humble ourselves continually at the feet of Jesus. It is here where we find the main point for us today. Looking intently upon Christ is the remedy to transform our faith. Just like we all like to imitate our favorite television show or movie character because we we watch them a lot, so also it is that if we seek him, a natural byproduct will be to look like Jesus and do the things that he taught. If we humble ourselves at his feet, his grace will take us to where we need to be. And where we need to be looks a lot like Jesus. For those of us here today who are in Christ, let us hold clear to the calling of our Lord. Because of his faithfulness, he not only holds our salvation fast into eternity, but he also shows endless mercy to us. For those of us here today who may be wondering how your story fits with Peter's story, don't lose sight of how Jesus deals with Peter. Learn from him that we are all sinners and that we all feel shame, that we cannot overcome on our own strength. Nothing you have done is greater than the extent of forgiveness that is granted via the cross if you place your faith in him today. Finally, may Peter's own words later in his life echo our lives. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he writes, that though we may be grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Indeed, may we look intently upon Christ and depend on his grace to fuel our faithfulness. And may our faithfulness in word and deed be a pleasing offering in his sight. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to receive your grace and understand your forgiveness at the depths of our being. I pray that we in this church would be known amongst each other and in our community as persons who are faithful to Jesus Christ and that this witness would bring others into the faith. Forgive us for lack of faith. Indeed, help our unbelief at times. And Spirit, guide us to be more Christ-like this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.